Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to, to you, Lord Christ. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Yeah, it's a lot of kids. Welcome, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We do pray that we would hide it in our hearts, that we might know you, love you, and follow you all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're getting a new sermon series today on prayer as understood through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, there are many new beginnings happening this morning. We're beginning our third decade as a church today. Today is our 20th anniversary worshiping together. We're also beginning a new capital campaign, our third campaign, and the most ambitious by far, $30 million. I really hope that some of y'all made really big wagers on the horns last night. If you made, if anyone made a really big wager, could you place your, raise your, I'm just kidding. But do see me after church. Love to talk. Keller said that he thinks that he was wondering while that game was happening, if a lot of people were thinking, if I'm going to have another child, I think I'm going to name him Quinn. So if that is you, there's a lot of burnt orange out there this morning. But seriously, why a sermon series on prayer right now? Several reasons. One, this capital campaign is not something that we can achieve in our own strength. As large as we've grown, as sacrificial as so many of you have been throughout the last 20 years, this campaign is still a stretch for us. It is not something that we can do in our own strength. It's an endeavor of holy risk. Truly, I think, holy risk, but risk nonetheless. And so we're going to have to pray. Secondly, I don't think that we necessarily know how to pray. If we're anything like the disciples, we don't. In this passage and several others, Jesus' assumption is that prayer is very difficult and most don't know how to pray. And one other reason for a sermon series on prayer right now, and that is I'm convinced that our culture is starved for it. So many people seem to be desperately searching for some sense of transcendence and some taste of intimacy with God. Just think about it. As a society, we've been told for at least a century that God doesn't exist, nor any spiritual realm, or even our souls as humans. Secular scientists and sociologists have sought for decades upon decades to explain religion away and to speak of it as simply chemical reactions, that that's what it is for us as humans. We're chemical reactions, evolutionary processes, 
socialization patterns, the reduced humans to biology and sociology alone. And many have predicted for years that religion would slowly decline and then eventually disappear. But it hasn't. In fact, in many ways, the opposite has happened. Now, of course, Christianity statistically is declining in the U.S., but as it does, people are rushing into anything that gives them a a mystical experience or a taste of transcendence. For example, the Burning Man gathering happened this last week in the Nevada desert, over 100,000 people, 70,000 of whom were stuck by the storms and the mud that it created. But Burning Man is this week of camping and art making along with indiscriminate drug use and sex that culminates in this ceremonial burning of a wooden effigy as all sorts of sacrificial and ceremonial aspects. And that may be an extreme example and not very mainstream for most people, but yoga is. And I go to yoga once a week or so for exercise only, but many are there for much, much more. For them, it's their religion. And so too, for many, counseling, an intimate conversation with another person who helps you get in touch with unseen spiritual, psychological realities that we can't deny even after decades upon decades of secularism. And I know many people who use meditation apps on their phone, which is just Eastern meditation practices repackaged for Western people. And I also know many people who speak about their workout groups as we used to speak about the church. What's the joke? How do you know if somebody does CrossFit? They'll tell you they do CrossFit because <laughs> we evangelize what we love. And also, I know that we live in one of the most highly sex- sexualized cities in our country, The Williams Institute just released a study about the most LGBTQ populated cities per capita in our country. And Austin is basically number two, right behind San Francisco, which is at 6.7% of their population per capita. People identify as LGBTQ. We're basically tied with Portland. Portland's 6%. We're 5.9% in Austin. The next closest is Los Angeles at 5.1%. New York City is only 4.5%. And a primary message of the LGBTQ community, it's not just their message, but it's very important for them, is that sexuality is the foundation of identity, that you are your sexual expression, that everything in life is predicated upon that. And that message is heard and felt and seen here in Austin almost as much as anywhere in the country. And for so many people, regardless of their sexual orientation here in Austin, sexual experience is the greatest taste of transcendence that they will ever know. And so what's the point? My point is that all this rushing into various engagements and disciplines with the mind and the body, whether it's the the repackaged Eastern meditation or the workout regimens or the therapy or the hypersexualization of life and culture, I would submit to you that it's all substitutes for prayer, that that is how we as a society are filling the vacuum because we don't know how to pray. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't go to your CrossFit class. I'm not saying stop going to your counselor or your 12-step program. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is that as a culture, we've been told God doesn't exist and we don't have souls. And so the mystical experience of Christian prayer, of coming into the presence of God the Father in and through the mediation of God the Son, by the power and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been told, you know, in order to commune and and connect with him and communicate with him, we've been told it's nonsense. We've been told it's not real. 
And yet through the back door of our lives and even in our culture, all of these other alternatives come that give us a taste of what we've been told doesn't exist. But even at the same time, and we, and we, we, we can't get enough of it, but at the same time, no amount of sex, meditation, yoga, drugs, therapy, it, it's not been enough for us. And it's not worked. As David Brooks wrote in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, as a society, we're meaner and sadder than we've ever been. By 2030, depression is slated to be the number one disability in our country. And why? Because we don't know how to pray. Because we don't know why we should pray or to whom to pray. And so two points this morning to begin to answer the question of prayer that will unfold and answer for many weeks to come. So two errors with prayer to begin with today, pretending and babbling. First of all, pretending, pretending in prayer. In our passage, Jesus teaches us, before he teaches us how to pray, he has to teach us how not to pray. And he uses two negative examples, one from the Jewish world and one from the pagan world. And he starts with this Jewish anti-example in verse five, which I've called pretending, but he calls those who fall into it hypocrites which is a word we've just transliterated straight over from the Greek. And it's really a compound word. It's, this, this two, it's two words together that mean to judge under. Hupo, under. Critis, to judge. Hypocrite, to judge under. It means when somebody looks at you and judges you based upon what you are living under, like an actor, a play actor, living or acting under a mask. Play actors in Jesus' day wore masks. It's where we get our phrase two-faced from, because if you have a mask on, you have two faces, your mask, and then your real face. Jesus says, don't be like them. And who is them? What's well, the religious people, the Jewish people who like many of us, I would imagine express a belief in the Bible and seek to follow after the God of the Bible and prayed in public, just like I've prayed in public today, like many of us have as well. And he says here at the end of verse five, they pray publicly and notice this, they love it right there in the middle of the verse. You notice that? They love it. One commentator said that that, has, that word has erotic connotations or it can because it's a passionate word. It can be translated consumed or intoxicated by standing up before others in order to be seen by others because it's not just a passion for them. That's the end of the description for Jesus because that's their end goal to be seen by others, not to be seen by God. At least the pagans here in a few verses that Jesus describes, they were actually trying to engage with God or at least the divine or some sense of it, but not these folks. Prayer for them is just this feigned public pretense to get people's attention and their admiration. It's just this religious mask because what motivates them at their very core is not God. It's other people. And their prayer life, more than anything else, shows it. So Jesus says at the end of verse 5, they have received their reward. They've gotten what they're after. It's kind of ominous sounding. And I hear that and I can't help but think about all the famous Christian religious leaders who have ended their lives in ministry and controversy or scandal. The list is quite long right now. Maybe it's always quite long. Of course, there's Mark Driscoll and the now infamous podcast of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. 
Driscoll reportedly abused his power with his staff and also manipulated the New York Times bestseller list by having his church buy thousands and thousands of copies of his book, which he only partially wrote. And then there's Bill Hybels, the founder and of the original seeker-sensitive church just outside Chicago in Willow Creek, which changed the landscape and the history of American Christianity. And he resigned six months before retirement because multiple women came forward accusing him of sexual misconduct over decades. And then, of course, there's the internationally famous Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias, and his accusations are even more shocking. Years of sexual assault and allegations of rape from multiple women, all under the pretense of needing massages because of the physical difficulty incurred from international travel, and all paid for by ministry funds and ignored by ministry staff. Nothing was known publicly about this until several months after his death. Such was his power to keep people quiet. And I could go on. There are more examples, even some from our own denomination, men that I myself know. And while the details and accusations against them vary, the tie that binds them all together is publicity and fame. Because fame does something strange to us. It seems to amplify the already present power of sin that, our, that is in our disordered hearts, which Martin Luther famously called incurvitus in se. In Latin, it just means curved in on ourselves. That's what we're like. And fame seems to sharpen or deepen the curve within us. And so don't miss the contrast here that Jesus sets up. Publicly seen by others or privately, secretly seen by God whom Jesus says not only sees in secret, but notice he is in secret. Much like I said several weeks ago in my sermon on the mustard seed and leaven, there is always a hiddenness to God in this world. There's always a seemingly smallness and unspectacular simplicity to the ways that he works and the ways that he is found in this world. And so we have to connect with him and commune with him and communicate with him in secret first or otherwise, we might just end up pretending to pray and pretending to seek him and pretending to engage with him in times like this and in times like worship or in Bible study or in acts of service or even in giving to a capital campaign. And so are you pretending this morning? Because this is the first error. The second error with prayer is babbling in prayer. In verse seven, we read, do not heap up empty phrases, which is kind of ironic because that's a lot of words in English to translate just one word in Greek, which is a compound word. That's, we could translate babble words or babble speak. Jesus says, don't babble. Don't repeat words or phrases over and over again as if they have some sort of magical quality to them or they're going to gain some sort of strength or influence with God based upon the more often or more regularly or constantly they're used. And you find this today even in some forms of prayer, especially Eastern prayer, Buddhism or Hinduism and their prayer because their prayer relies upon the repetitions of certain mantras or, or certain sounds. And even if you go to some yoga classes today, you'll hear it, which I would recommend not going to those, but you'll hear words like om repeated over and over again. You'll hear words like shanti said, because the idea is that the repetition of these sounds or word has some sort of impact upon the spiritual realm, and it brings you in and, and sucks you in in order for you to be more fully and completely absorbed into it, because God or the divine or whatever it may be, it's just a force. It's just a power. 
and nothing more. And Jesus here couldn't describe God any more differently than that when he says God is like a father who knows and delights to provide you with what you need, not necessarily what you want, but what you need, even before you begin to ask. He knows. And this means that any endless repetition, whether mindless repetition of sounds or even with words, it simply isn't necessary. And I don't think we appreciate or understand how revolutionary this was at that time in the world, especially for Greek and, and Roman people who, for them, the gods were just obvious projections of themselves. They were deities made in the image of man. They were capricious and selfish. They were reluctant, they thought, to hear prayers and very difficult to persuade or ever move into action. So people thought they had to wear the gods down with words and more and more. Famously, the the first century philosopher Seneca, who was teaching at the same time of Jesus, he told the people they had to fatigue the gods in order to get what they wanted from them. And this assumes something worse than Hinduism or Buddhism. It doesn't assume that God is impersonal. It assumes that the gods are very personal, but also selfish and insecure and begrudging and miserly in anything good that they might do. And sometimes, and even oftentimes, cruel. And some of you had fathers like this. And so Jesus saying that God is like a father who knows isn't comforting. Imagine a father taking a child into a gigantic toy store back when we used to have actual toy stores like FAO Schwartz in Chicago or New York or someplace, or even just imagine a candy store like Big Top Candy on South Congress. That's still, that's still open, right? Yeah. I don't know either. Anyways, Big Top Candy in South Congress. Imagine taking a four or five-year-old there and showing him or her all the candy and, and all the kids who are buying the candy and eating the candy there. And, and the little child or boy or girl starts jumping up and down with excitement thinking, I'm going to get to buy candy. I'm going to get to eat some candy. And then the father turns to that child and says, you're getting none of it. I'm not buying anything for you because you don't deserve it. And you haven't proven yourself and your worth to me. So I forbid you from getting any candy. And then he drags that child out. What would that do to that child? It would distort and damage that child so much that he or she would never again be able to trust that father, but probably anyone else as well. And friends, we're distorted like this as well, I think. Because I know this because this is how we oftentimes treat other people. Though it's an extreme example, it's quite similar because the assumed basis for so many of our relationships, so much of the time is you prove yourself. You prove yourself. You do for me what I want for you to do. And then I'll give you the reward or the benefit from me that you are seeking and that you want. It's transactional. It's mercenary. And it can be so cruel. We can be so cruel. So honestly, how many of your relationships are like this? Because our relationships with others are the mirror to our relationship with God and our view of him. So we have to ask, do I fear that God is like this cruel father? This passage begs that question, but so too also our Old Testament passage from Genesis 3. Because when the serpent came to Eve in the garden, he sowed this cruel father lie into her soul by asking, did God actually say that you shall eat of no tree of the garden? God didn't say that, but the seed of that lie was sown 
that God wants her, wants us to be miserable, that he's keeping good things from us, that he doesn't have our best interests in mind, that he can't be trusted. And so in order for me to get what I want, I've got to go out on my own and do what I want and get it the way that I so choose in my own strength and in my own timing, because God's a tyrant and life with him is like living in a police state. So rejection or outright rebellion, that's the only option or maybe coercion or manipulation through prayer and religious deeds and a scrupulously moral life where I wear myself out continually by begging and then behaving and begging and behaving. That those are the only options for a God like this and for me getting what I want. That seed was sown into our collective humanity and it has led to all sin in every form along with all of its misery. And so many of us still believe it because we've prayed And God hasn't given us what we want or what we've asked for. Whether a spouse or a child or a job that we enjoy or friends that we enjoy or health or healing or happiness in our circumstances or happiness for our kids, success for our kids, success for ourselves financially or in life or recognition or admiration or respect from friends or colleagues or family. You've prayed and, and you've asked, and God hasn't delivered, and it's left you either cold or apathetic toward him, or worse, fearful and anxious about what else he might do, what else he might allow, or what else he might not do in your life. And so what do you do? You pretend before others, or you babble yourself to death before God, and you don't have to. We can do something very different, Jesus says in verse six. He says, go into your room, which is best translated storeroom, because there was one room in ancient first century rural Palestinian houses that had a lock, and it was the storeroom where they kept all the valuables, the food, the tools, small animals, even anything that could be stolen. They kept that in there, and Jesus says, go in there and lock the door. Lock out any and all other influences or distractions or attachments that might vie for your attention or your allegiance and pray there in secret. Because the storeroom that Jesus refers to as the center or the heart of the entire household, regardless of what the rest of the house or, or the grounds or the garden outside might look like on the outside, if the storeroom was empty or dwindling in supplies, or if it was pilfered or in disarray, then before too long, the rest of the household, the rest of the house, the rest of the grounds would all follow suit. And friends, the storeroom of your life is your soul. And if your soul is empty or dwindling in spiritual supply or pilfered or in disarray, then before too long, the rest of your life will follow. And so Jesus directs us to go to an actual physical place that is reminiscent of our own soul and to engage with God in that physical place that we might actually engage with him in our soul and engage with him in our soul for him to get more of him before seeking or desiring or predicating our life upon getting anything else from him. And do you know who listened to Jesus and who did this? Tim Keller, one of the most famous Christians with as public a life and widespread acclaim as anyone in the last 50 to 100 years. And so, and many of you know that he died this year. And do you know how he died? Without infamy, without accusations, without any scandal. So how was he different? Why was he different from all these other previous Christian leaders, these famous men that I mentioned? 
He was different because he was a man of private prayer before public performance. In his book on prayer, which he entitled Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, which I think is his definition for prayer. It's not getting things from God. It's experiencing awe and intimacy with God. He writes this. He says, if we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination. We will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health, and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxiety, self-pity, and old grudges. This is a person that's starved for intimacy with a heavenly father who knows and who is good and who is infinitely gracious and ever giving to people like us, to the undeserved and the unproved. And so is this you this morning? Are you starving? Because you don't have to be. Because Jesus not only said these words, he also followed them. He followed them all the way until the very night before he went to the cross to die for us and for our sin. And what did he do on that night? He went to a lonely place, to a secret place, and he prayed in secret to his father who is in secret. He didn't speak to the crowds. He didn't seek them, nor any attention or acclaim or approval from them. In fact, he resisted all of that until it was time to allow it in. And he allowed it all in, all of their attention with all its evil and vitriol. And he did so after he prayed. It was then he was arrested and mistreated and rejected, and he endured it, all the pain, all the loss, all the mistreatment, all the way to the cross where he prayed again, but not as a beggar before a tyrant, but as a son before a father. And not long babbling prayers, but brief, frequent, intense prayers on the cross, one of which was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which is the very center of the Lord's prayer here. That's the very center of the Lord's prayer, that part about forgiveness. And in fact, the Lord's prayer is the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. 116 lines before it, 114 lines after it. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' primary description of a life following after him and believing in him as Savior, as Lord, and following after him. And the very, very center of the Lord's prayer, and the very, very center of the Lord's prayer is forgiveness. Forgiveness by God's grace based upon who Jesus is. That's the very center of everything, friends, including prayer. And so take that, your forgiveness and acceptance with God because of Christ into the storeroom of your soul and you will begin to pray. And you will find that your prayers will be very different. They won't be pretending. They won't be babbling. They won't be begging. They will be praising And that's next week. That's how he begins with with praising and thanking God and then eventually praying for others and even forgiving others. So go to a secret place, lock out any and everything that tries to steal the utmost place in your heart from God and pray. Just be there with the scriptures. Take the scriptures with you, read them, and then speak to God in response to what you read. Set aside 20 minutes or so a day. If you've never done this, start there. And if you've never done this at all, we've made a booklet for you based on the Psalms, which are prayers that can help you. You can get it on the way out. Because friends, God is the passion and he is the goal behind prayer. He is what we 
want most. He is what we most need. And he is what he himself is what he gives most in prayer. So go lock the door, pray. Amen. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would teach us to pray. We recognize that we are like the disciples who asked to know and to be taught how to pray because we don't know. And so, Father, do enable us to take into the storeroom of of our soul who you are and all that you have done for us in and through your son that we might begin to pray, to praise you, to seek you, to find you, and to even engage with you for the sake of others in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.